Hi all, before we begin, just a quick note about timing. These last few weeks have been really nuts in our world, and we needed to take a short break from the podcast over Passover to celebrate the holiday and do other work. We are tentatively back to an every other Sunday release schedule, but we will also take a break again if we need to. Thanks for listening and thanks for understanding. Here's the episode. The greatest art belongs to the world. Do not be intimidated by the experts. Trust your instincts. Do not be afraid to go against what you were taught or what you were told to see or believe. Every person, every set of eyes, has the right to truth. These paintings will speak to you as they have to me. When you have looked as you have never looked before, you will come to agree with me, and then the record must be set straight. To do this, you must protest. You must be difficult and impossible to ignore. I hope you will write by the thousands to museum officials, to newspapers, to those in power. from Chasing Vermeer by Blue Balliette, and this is Books That Raised Us. I'm Alana Shapiro, an educator and mom whose best friends were books for most of my childhood. And I'm Esty Shapiro, and I'm using this episode as an excuse to revise my self-deprecating intro because more than any other book that we've covered so far, this one gives me a really great excuse to talk about my own life and work and interests and practice. Um, But before I get into that, I want to ask what you remember about this book. So, first of all, I have to apologize for completely butchering the author's name when I introduced this during our last episode. um, I remembered her name very incorrectly, Um, but thank you for correcting that um, this time. But what I remember about the book is that it's this really fun art mystery. And it has to do with um, the artist Vermeer. And it's set in Chicago um, at the Art Institute of Chicago. And there's two children, two young kids, who are really smart and really clever and very into art and very independent kind of like Chicago City kids and they track down this art theft they they solve an art mystery um, of this missing very famous Vermeer painting I'm really really embarrassed because I can't remember which Vermeer painting it is that they that gets stolen that they find um but I narrowed it down to two so I'm really curious to see if I even remember that correctly (laughs) what what do you think it is so it's either girl with the pearl earring or a lady writing and it's a lady writing. okay okay good glad I at least remembered that much um, yeah, no, I, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, 
Calder and Petra are two students in Miss Husey's class at the, it's like the University of Chicago Laboratory School, so it's right. this really, like, um, really progressive sort of experimental, like, pedagogical model, which I think goes back to our conversation about Miss Nelson is missing and, like... <laughs> how you can sort of tell when a book was written by what a classroom looks like in it, right? We are, And I think there's still more on that thesis to explore. But, right. But I, I do think that um, this feels much more contemporary um, just because of sort of the structure of the classroom. And it's, it's the model is this, like, very sort of radical teacher who lets yeah. the kids decide what yeah. they're learning and asks these really, like, open-ended questions and... Um, conducts this sort of like studio or laboratory kind of um, mode in her classroom that I don't know I feel like now you would call like project-based learning or you know like right student center yeah Yeah, exactly but um, but that definitely is an important part of the book Um, and you're right it it centers around um, an exhibit on Vermeer that the Art Institute of Chicago was putting on and they were getting a lady in writing on loan from the National Gallery in DC oh. and it it basically it like doesn't show like it gets to Chicago but it then it's gone like it never shows up at the museum um and and these two students Petra and Calder uh solve the the art heist the mystery Ooh. um which is kind of fun that is fun what year did it come out <laughs> Yeah, so um, it came out in 2004, and so I was, like, nine. I probably read it within a year of its release, so I was, I was, I don't know, maybe fourth grade uh, when I read this book uh, for the first time. And I, I realized part of why I read it right away is just, it's a matter of good timing, but it's, like, it's a scholastic book, um, and it, it came out at just the right time that that was the age of books that we were looking for and that my my brother and I were consuming books rather rapidly and um instead of you know now I think you would probably turn to like a blog or the internet but this was a moment when you looked to the scholastic catalog um <laughs> to see what you could get at the book fair um for for sort of our new reading and so that's that's definitely how this book came into my life um and I I remember vividly that sort of we within our family read it each of us and and loved it and then um you used this book for like a fourth and fifth grade book club that you ran uh with my class and so I um, remember that (laughs) (laughs) and and the reason I remembered that the moment while reading the book that I remembered that was when um, Petra and Calder have this whole like shtick about eating, specifically Calder, about eating the blue M&M's and that the blue ones right. are lucky and they like pick the blue ones out of the bag of M&M's. And I remember for book club that you got blue, blue M&M's. M&M's. I totally remember um, that. <laughs> and we like we had to go to like the M&M store where you get to pick your custom colors and yeah. you don't get like the the regular assortment of bags and you know you got a whole whole big thing of blue M&M's for book club <laughs> snacks. So that was when that memory was, <laughs> that was is, triggered. <laughs> that's really funny that that's what brought that back. Were there any parts of the book that surprised you or that you had forgotten about? Yeah. Um, 
spoiler alert, because I don't know how to say this without ruining the end of the book, but um, the part that really I had completely forgotten that surprised me the most was um, sort of who it turns out is the the art thief, like who who the the villain is um, in this story. Um, I don't know. Do you remember this at all? Yeah, it's a guy who's somehow connected to Miss Husey. Or I mean, something, sort of. Right? He he met her and got some of the ideas from her. He's connected to a lot of the characters in the book, and that's sort of how... It's a, a pretty intricate crime. Um, and he's, <laughs> you know, he's simultaneously, like, framing another a number of people who live in Hyde Park, and there's a whole thing around that. But it, it turns out, so at the beginning of the year, part of what brings Calder and Petra together and, and sort of generates this... Um, this new and sort of tenuous friendship is that Calder's best friend, Tommy, had moved at the beginning of the school year. He had left to go to New York because his mom got remarried and he's sort of out of the way, like off the scene. And, and Calder throughout the whole book is, is writing letters back and forth to him. And they have this like secret code that ends up being part of the code that you use to do. Do you remember there's like a whole picture, like a, there's, like, a hidden message in the illustration. Yeah, it has to do... There's, like, hidden frogs in all the pictures, and then there's also tangrams. Pentominos. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Pen, that's what I meant. Pentominos um, hidden throughout the book that help you, like, solve something. Yeah, so in each of the illustrations, there's a pentomino, and there's a certain number of frogs, and... Uh, Tommy and Calder have this code with pentominoes and like letter and you use that to like decode a, a hidden message in the book. Anyways, that's besides the point. But <laughs> the spoiler alert, if you're gonna read the book, skip this part. The the criminal, the guy who stole the Vermeer painting is Tommy's stepdad, new stepdad, who oh. he hates. And so Okay. The, whatever. There's yeah. like a whole nother layer. That's <laughs> kind of how he's adjacent to this um, community. But anyways, I just, it was like a, a way wittier sort of um, resolution. And like, it's another one of those things that this book is so good at, which is like leaving breadcrumbs and clues throughout right. the whole book. And also like, sort of relying on the intuition of these kids to, like, really know what's what's up. And, and the fact was that, like, Tommy hated him the whole time. Right? You're always yeah. hearing about, like, Fred, the evil stepdad, and then it turns out that Fred, he's the, Fred. like, international art thief. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, is there another adult involved other than Miss Miss Husey? Miss Sharp is is an older woman. Yeah. Okay, so I couldn't remember if I was imagining that because I was mixing it up with Basil E. Frankweiler <laughs> or if there was there was an older woman who also like helped them and gave them clues or something, right? Yeah. So she has super strong Basil E. Frankweiler vibes <laughs> just like as a character. Um honestly, I I feel like in many ways this book is sort of a, a 21st century or an update on, on a lot of those themes, and I'm confident that this author was inspired by Conisberg, and I'm that sure, like, sense. these books feel very much of, of a similar lineage to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Miss Sharp is, like, 
um, a neighbor and and her husband was an art historian who worked on Vermeer and they she's also connected to the whole the whole mystery sort of and they they get to know her um but the other part that surprised me um which I feel like you even touched on in your introduction of what you remember is how little time they spend in the museum um and I think part of that is a conflation with mixed up files also right and part of it is just that a lot of the book is talking about the museum or talking about the missus missing painting or their like press releases from the museum um but there's actually only like one scene one chapter that the kids on a field trip are physically in the art institute with really yeah with miss husey which really surprised me um but they go I, I remember this, I think, as a bigger part of the story than it was, but they go and there's this Picasso painting that they look at and Miss Husey's asking them questions about, like, art and truth and what's real, whatever, around this, this Picasso painting. And, um, yeah. I. That's funny. It's like one little you, scene. Yeah, you would think they'd spend more time there if <laughs> it was such a central part of the... Um the plot. It's funny because when I first went to Chicago, I visited Chicago and went to the Art Institute, I kept thinking about this book and how that's where it was set and what a great museum that is. Um, That's funny that it wasn't, (laughs) that they didn't spend as much time there. Um, So did you have, do you have a favorite part or is there a favorite character that you have in the book? Yeah, I mean, definitely Miss Husey is, like, I have such a a soft spot for her. I think she is a teacher who runs runs her classroom in a way that feels really um, authentic to me. Um, And and she's sort of, like, described as this this kind of young, green, maybe idealistic, but also maybe kind of um, inexperienced teacher, right? And... And I think in some ways in the book that's, I wouldn't say it's considered a flaw, but she's definitely, like, um, part of her character is that she's, like, not, she's a very unconventional teacher and that she yeah. maybe doesn't always know what, <laughs> what she's doing exactly. Um, but I, I just really admire sort of how that classroom is, is set up. Um... And it, yeah, it's just, like, it's not very frontal teaching. It's sort of big, kind of existential, making meaning out of the world questions that she's asking. Um, And I I really love that. Um, But also, the other piece of this book that I would say is my favorite is is the way that it thinks about puzzles and the way it's, it's sort of... It's talking about things like pentominoes and recognizing patterns and, and these, like, you know, there are these visual cues throughout the book. But the same way that the story is about, like, puzzles and clues and, and re- figuring these things out, it's also performing that in, like, through the illustrations and also Got kind it. of how the narrative plays out. Um, and I just, I love that. That is neat. It reminds me when I first read it. It kind of reminded me of Da Vinci Code, 
And in some ways it was like, you know, the younger person's version of, you know, codes and, and um, deciphering codes and clues throughout the environment. Illuminati and exactly. all the Catholic and, church nonsense. And murders and, and all of that. Yeah. So that wasn't a part of it. Yeah. It's like if the Da Vinci Code was like, code was like actually a very good book. <laughs> That's my hot take on that. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, Dan Brown. Um, I should have also mentioned when I was talking about the sort of the villain or right the art thief and and that big reveal um, that that's so part of the frog the frog thing is like a running the frog in the illustrations is like a running joke throughout the book. Um, there's like just this sort of inexplic inexplicable fascination with frogs and it shows up in the illustrations but it's also like one of the stories that Tommy tells Calder in his letters is about this kid named frog who disappeared oh, right. and also frogs are like a whole thing in the Charles Fort book of like unexplained happenings that they sort of take on as this like mm -hmm. theory for everything um anyway so the the frog thing is like uh, <laughs> it was really in there there was a theme throughout a thing and the the like villain is so it's i don't know i mean he's obviously a bad guy he's the art thief and an asshole stepdad but he's also like they complicate this character by um by his like communication so the letters he's sending and the press releases he's making about the painting, he's actually taken on a lot of Miss Husey and Mrs. Sharp's ideas about art. And so, because he's, like, talked to them, he knows oh. about... So so that piece that I read at the beginning of the book, mm -hmm. the, um, the, like, introduction to this podcast, um, is actually a quote from one of the letters from the anonymous thief... So that whole oh. question about, like, the authenticity of art and art belongs to the world and we need to get to the bottom of this Vermeer mystery, those are things that Miss Husey and Miss Sharp, sort of via her late husband, feel and believe and advocate for in earnest. And the, the thief has sort of taken on some of this persona, in part to frame them and in part because he thinks it makes a good heist right like it, it wow. sort of garners public attention in the way that he wants um yeah but I just think it was kind of cool that they sort of complicate the villain character by like actually attributing to that voice a lot of really kind of provocative and interesting ideas about art and the role of art in society and yeah. and authenticity and ownership and I don't know. Yeah I wouldn't have thought that that quote that you read from the beginning of the book would have been from the bad guy like you would have thought that was Miss Yusi talking or something they saw or read at the museum. Right. But it's also funny that it's like, it's the guy who's saying art belongs to everyone who's st stealing a painting so that he can sell it to an art collector for like millions of dollars, right? Like it's, I mean, it's obviously hypocritical, but I think it's, it's, the book is just really smart in that way. Yeah, fascinating. What was your favorite part? So I... I loved the the kids. They were for sure my favorite characters, Petra and Calder. I thought they were just 
this like really fantastic duo. But one of my favorite things about the book, and I'm just, I sort of have a soft spot for books that do this, is the, at the very beginning of the book, there's a map, right? Of yeah. their neighborhood. Yeah. And the I Art think. Institute, I think. I don't know if the Art Institute's no. on there, but like where their school is and where Petra lives and where Calder lives. It's and that kind the of university and their yeah. houses and the used bookstore that they visit. And okay. Yeah. And I absolutely love books that do that. <laughs> and I, you know, ever since I was little, when there was a book that, that had that at the beginning, um, you know, I would read through the text and then have to stop and like turn back to the map and look for the different places on the map and visualize it. And I think I'm a really kind of visual person and I, I make up these pictures in my mind when I'm reading a book. And I've always really, really gotten into books that have maps at the beginning. So that, I mean, it's kind of silly, but that's probably one of my favorite things about the book. Well, and what's funny about this one versus others is I feel like oftentimes books that have either a map or, like, character charts in the beginning are, like, really complex, often, like, fantasy novels, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking, like, Game of Thrones has to have a map because, like, how could you possibly keep all those places straight? And what I love about this is, like, it's a fairly simple story about (laughs) a fairly familiar feeling neighborhood right like there's nothing sort of exotic or hard to track in that um and still it's a really fun illustration it's a really great way to sort of reference like oh you know when they find the painting and they're running home like oh they're running all the way across the you know the campus or right like those kinds of things um it definitely I think (laughs) especially for a younger audience helps helps track um and it, yeah, I think it, it's also, it's funny because it's not a map purely in plan. Like, now I'm going to be a jerk architect. <laughs> yeah. No, so it's like three-dimensional. It's, it's like, like slanted. It's, it's, an, almost. it's an axon, but it's like not projected correctly. <laughs> it's, it's an isometric drawing. It's a 3D drawing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And so... It gives you also a sense of of scale of, like, for example, the large halls of the university versus the, like, single-family house residences on on sort of the other side of the neighborhood and and kind of how, yeah, how that plays out, I think, is, is interesting. I also, like... This in particular is interesting because it's supposed to be at the University of Chicago, which is on the south side, and there's actually a really sort of tense or tenuous relationship between this very wealthy institution and the historically black neighborhood that it's in, and oh. then the the students and professors who come there associated with the university and also all the land that the university buys up is, like, complicated because of gentrification and other wow. <laughs> other things, and, like, Obviously, this book doesn't touch on that, and maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a criticism or a shortcoming, um, that, like, 15 years ago, we were writing very white stories about very white institutions, and, like, there are maybe some, like, blind blind spots there, mm-hmm. but um, it is a very fun story. Yeah, for sure. So... 
how would you say that this book raised you? I mean, I feel like I don't want to keep reiterating the same point, but, but truly, like, the way it thinks about patterns and puzzles and shapes and space and art um, it feels, like, very important to sort of who I am. Um, and um, in this book specifically, it's pentominoes, but pentominoes could have just as easily been tetrominoes, it could have been the game Tetris, it could have been tangrams, which, you know, I, I probably got my first set of tangrams around the same time, or maybe even because of the interest I was expressing right. in this book, and those, those sorts of kind of open-ended, like, puzzles and, and spatial reasoning, um, tools were some of my favorite, I don't even want to call them toys, but, like, activities um, when I was young and I think have a lot to do with why I ended up going to architecture school and you know why right. I'm I'm a designer today and and why why I think about sort of these visual patterns and and what we can learn from spaces and and um, like the puzzle that is sort of the city you live in or the museum you're visiting or the story you heard on the news and and you know a lot of that is speculation a lot of it is like you have part of a story and you're sort of filling in the gaps and sometimes making shit up but <laughs> but I think yeah this this book thinks about like that line between like observation and speculation um and how we use that to like make meaning of the world around us um in a way that I still find really really compelling yeah for sure um I I know that you weren't a kid with this <laughs> book right you were already a, a mom of late elementary students when it came out um but how what impact has this book had in in your life or yeah how do you remember it? in yeah in some ways I feel like it didn't raise me as a child because I didn't read it until I was an adult but in some ways, I do think it raised me as a teacher and really impacted my teaching practice. Um, you know, you, you started by talking about Miss Husey and the lab school and just the way her classroom is run and a very kind of open-ended, student-centered approach to teaching. And at the time that this book came out and we read it for, I think it was fifth grade book club, and... Um, I was leading that at the school. That was also a time in which I was really learning quite a lot about student-centered teaching and project-based learning and more um, student-centered practices in the classroom. And so it really meshed with that in some ways. It was like there was this character that was actually doing what we were talking about. And um, it really showed me in a lot of ways about how that impacts students and their learning. And, you know, these, these kids, Petra and Calder, to me were just so, so bright and um, such problem solvers and outside of the box thinkers. And they, they had to do so much to really 
follow these clues and persevere and um, you know run into obstacles and figure out a way around them that that just has really created in some ways the way I want to be as an educator or as a as a school leader now um, so I guess that's how it raised me <laughs> I love that so big question you have to be truthful when you reread it did you rework out the code and figure it out again? Or did you remember it from when you read it when you were a kid? No, I do remember being extremely proud of myself that I figured it out. Like the first time I read this book, like <laughs> extremely proud of myself because it's, there are like three pieces, right? There's like the number of frogs in the picture plus the pentomino letter that's in the picture and then you have to use this, like, code, like, key that Tommy and Calder use in their letters oh. to, like, crack it. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, it's very complicated. This time, I remember the first couple pictures, I was like, oh, yeah, the frogs. Like, that's part of the thing. And I, like, spotted some of them, but I did not actually take the time to go through every <laughs> illustration, write down the clues, and then decode it. Um I don't know. Maybe I, I had more patience or energy for that when I was <laughs> 10. 10. Um. I remember when I was doing book club with you all, I was so resentful because shortly after I read the whole book with you guys and we all like worked on it and figured out the code and all of that, I realized that there's actually a teacher's guide <laughs> that Scholastic published that had all the answers and the way you crack the code and all the clues. I was like, ah, oh, should have Googled that first. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think there was Google. Well, that's time. just it. This Yahoo. time I just Yahoo. Googled it and it was very easy to find. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. That was Chasing Vermeer on Books That Raised Us. Next time, we'll be talking about Goodnight Moon by Margaret Brown. You can find this show anywhere you listen to podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Until then, we're on Twitter and Instagram as at Books Raised Us. Our theme music is by Cooper Kaminsky. Happy reading! <laughs>